Welcome to the Faculty Podcast at RTS Washington. I'm pleased to say that we have a special treat this week. In fact, actually two special treats this week because we were able to host Dr. Alex Seng here at the seminary for our Global Bobbing Scholars series of lectures. And he not only gave us a fascinating lecture, but also joined us for a podcast. And first up then, we thought we would post uh, his lecture here at the beginning of the week and the podcast later on in the week. The lecture was entitled Bob Inc. and Modern Philosophy, Envisioning a Neo-Calvinist Engagement of Philosophy and Culture in Asia. It was a fascinating discussion, and as with all of our lectures, included a Q&A afterwards that was very informed and helpful and also engaged in the material ideas that Alex was uh, putting forward. If you, if you don't know Alex Tseng, he is a theologian and philosopher who studies not only Bavink, but Hegel, Kant, and Bart, and serves as the research professor in the philosophy department of Tsechung University. And we were glad to have him be looking for his podcast episode around Thursday at our normal publication time. And in the meantime, enjoy this special lecture in our Global Bobbing Scholars series. for coming here this evening for this event. It's a tremendous honor for me to be here. I've always looked up to RTS as this uh, great um, institution, bulwark of Reformed theology. Um, back in my college days, uh, it was uh, RTS professors who really helped me through some of my intellectual crises. Um, professors like uh, Richard Pratt and John Frame, um, so it's such an honor to be here, and I'm actually a bit nervous, so I actually uh, typed up my lecture for this evening. Um, so I'm going to share with you some of my reflections as a neo-Calvinist missionary working under the guise of a philosophy professor in China. So the, the title for the talk this evening is Bavink and Modern Philosophy, Envisioning a Neo-Calvinist Engagement of Philosophy and Culture in Asia. Uh, so I'll just read the paper. Uh, the, what I'm gonna read is a, a shorter version. Uh, you have the longer version uh, uh, that's uh, the, uh, on the handout. Uh, so I'll just read. Bavink and Modern Philosophy. It has been well documented in the secondary literature that writings of the Dutch neo-Calvinist theologian Herman Bavink are fraught with modern philosophical vocabularies, most notably that of a brand of philosophy known as German idealism, which features thinkers like G.W.F. Uh, Hegel. From the 1970s to about a decade ago, the predominant view among Dutch and Anglophone Bavink scholars was that Bavink was against his own confessionally orthodox self in his uses of these philosophical terms. The works of James Eglinton and Brian Matson from 
2012 called attention to the unity of Bavinck's thought by recognizing his critical employment of these terms as a means of repudiating their underlying worldviews. This trajectory was further developed in such a way that proponents of the school of interpretation, including our friend Grace Sutanto here, uh, would come to acknowledge Bavinck's incorporation of elements of these modern worldviews into his own confessional system as both critical and eclectic. In this lecture, I will rely on these developments in the secondary literature to reflect on how Bavinck's theology can shed light on theological speech in an Asian context. I will focus on Bavinck's treatment of the subject-object relations in the Trinitarian framework of unity in diversity and diversity in uni unity, highlighting his insistence on the abiding subjectivity of God in Revelation. Now, if this sounds a bit confusing, just think of a sentence in the English language. The subject performs the action and the object is acting or acted upon. And in grammatical terms, the abiding subjectivity of God means that in sentences involving God is or what God does, God is always the subject and subject predicate reversals characteristic of idealism, for example, the absolute is God, must always be excluded in theological speech. Theology as a science must deal with subject-object relations with extreme care. Bavinck writes, science always consists in a logical relation between subject and object. Our view of science depends on the way we relate the two. Now, Bavinck's very modern insistence on theology as a science is a much discussed topic in the secondary literature. And by science, Bavinck has in mind a distinctively modern German notion of Wissenschaft that became determinate in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Schleiermacher is usually recognized among neo-Calvinists as the first theologian in the higher scientific sense. Bavinck, as Gray has, uh, and our friend Corey Brock uh, has shown, have shown, uh, critically draw or draws on Schleiermacher's treatment of theology as a science in an eclectic manner. Bavinck would agree with Schleiermacher about the necessarily experien experiential character of theology as a science in the modern higher sense as prescribed by Kant. Bavinck comments that Kant is perfectly correct when he says that our knowledge does not extend further than our experience. End of quote. Note, however, that Bavinck's agreement with Kant is not systematic. Rather, Bavinck borrows Kantian language only to spell out the reformed insistence on the doctrine, the finite cannot contain the infinite, finitum non capax infinity. Whereas Schleiermacher tries to establish the experiential character of theology as a science by positing an identity between the infinite object God and the finite human subject, then Bavinck is emphatic that God is abidingly the subject and remains so even in giving himself to human knowledge. Even in becoming the object of the theological science, God does not cease to be the subject who has revealed himself and continues to make himself known. 
The criterion of experiential knowledge means for Bavink, quote, if God has not revealed himself, then neither is there any knowledge of him, end of quote. The idealistic subject-object identity posited by Schleiermacher in Bavink's view culminates in Hegel's philosophy. In an article that I co-authored with Frey Sutanto, we argued that Bavink makes critical uses of Hegel's philosophy to counter the increasingly naturalistic consciousness of the modern self to which the Enlightenment gave rise, while maintaining against Hegel the abiding subjectivity of God in Revelation. Bavink sought to correct what he saw as Hegel's mistake of subject-predicate reversal in ontological predications about God, a reversal that prioritizes phenomenal activity over noumenal essence. Hegel's all-encompassing notion of the absolute is demonstrative of this reversal. In place of the classical predication, God is absolute, Hegel sets forth the unusual assertion, the absolute is God. This effectively defines what God is by human conceptions of the absolute. Against Hegel, Bavink consistently insists that in predications involving God, God remains abidingly the subject. The God self revealed in the Christ of Scripture defines our rational conceptions of being, the perfect, the absolute, etc., and not the other way around. That Hegel's God is no more than a projected image of humanity became clear, says Bavink in the philosophers Ludwig Feuerbach and David Strauss. Feuerbach and Strauss took as their starting point Hegel's position that God and man are one, and both Feuerbach and Strauss ended up in materialism. Sensual nature is the only reality. Human beings are what they eat, writes Bavink. As Bavink sees it, Hegel's subject-predicate reversal in theological Theological predications lies at the methodological core of the anthropological anthropological essence of the idealist uh, philosophy. In the article that Gray and I co-authored, we conclude that anthropocentric starting point or, or the anthropocentric starting point of Hegel's speculative logic means that his logical trinity, conceived in human image, as Feuerbach has revealed, is one in which God's being is ultimately sublated in the moment of becoming. In his development of dogmatic theology as a modern scientific enterprise, Bavink asserts a strong notion of God's abiding subjectivity in Revelation to counter Hegel's subject-predicate reversal. Sutanto and I argue that Bavink's starting point is the self-revealed triune God whose absolute subjectivity is unsublatable. Just, that means irreversible. Creation and providence reveal God's essence, but they do not actualize, constitute, or determine it. In Revelation, God becomes an object of experiential knowledge. This ectypal objectivity in relation to creatures does not contradict God's immutable essence, but rather corresponds to it perfectly. For within God's triune essence is an endless objectivity in relation to subjectivity and activity. For Bavink, 
While humanity is the image of the triune God in a strict sense, we also speak of creation as a whole as an image of the Trinity in a general sense. He writes, and I quote, all of the works of God at extra are only adequately known when their Trinitarian existence is recognized, end of quote. Creation as a whole is endowed with, quote, vestiges of the Trinity, and these vestiges organically relate to one another with different statuses in the order of creation, such that, quote, the higher a thing's place in the order of creation, the more it aspires to its, or to the triad, end of quote. Here, Bavink is building on the Augustinian notion of vestigium trinitatis, or the vestige of the Trinity. Augustine comments on 1 John 4, 8 and 16, God is love. Augustine writes, love is of someone that loves, and with love something is loved. So there's subject, there's object. Behold, then, says Augustine, there are three things, he that loves and that which is loved and love. God is being in itself, or in Latin, ipsum esse, only as the Trinity. That, that is to say, God's aseity has everything to do with his triunity. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he does not need an object outside of himself to define himself as love. The fact that human persons are capable of loving others as they love themselves, says Augustine, can be understood only in light of the biblical truth that we are created in the image of the Trinity. Bavink applies this Augustinian notion of the vestigium trinitatis to creation in general. He envisions the universe as an organic whole through the central motif of a unity in diversity modeled after the triune God which presupposes a strict creator-creature distinction in which God is the archetype and creation the ectype. In this way, Bavink clearly distinguishes himself from the pantheistic worldview of German idealism. Bavink draws positively on German idealism to highlight the or organic uh, nature of creation against the mechanistic, naturalistic, and materialistic worldview that quote, has progressively penetrated modern consciousness, end of quote. It is the confession of God as the creator of heaven and earth that immediately brings with it the one absolute and never self-contradictory truth, the harmony and beauty of the counsel of God, and hence the unity of the cosmic plan and the order of all of nature. In so rejecting the mechanistic view of the universe, however, Bavink refuses to adopt the pantheistic alternative of, of German idealism. He observed that pantheism attempts to explain the world dynamically. Materialism attempts to do so me mechanistically, but both strive to see the whole as governed by a single principle. In a deadly bath of uniformity, writes Bavink, both these worldviews erase the boundaries between different natures within creation. Heaven and earth, matter and spirit, soul and body, man and animal, etc. As well as the qualitative distinction between creator and creature. The broken pieces of wisdom from these worldviews, insists Bavink, must be incorporated into scripture's worldview that is radically different. 
According to the biblical worldview, God created everything according to its own nature and continues to sustain the distinctions between different kinds of things. Sun, moon, and stars have their own unique task. Plants, animals, and humans are distinct in nature. There is the most profuse diversity, and yet in that diversity, there is also a superlative kind of unity." End of quote. This pattern of unity and diversity is modeled after the triune God. The foundation of both diversity and unity is in God. It is He who created all things, who continually upholds them in their distinctive natures. This is a unity that does not destroy, but rather maintains diversity, and a diversity that does not come at the expense of unity, but rather unfolds, unfolds it in its riches. Bafink urges that only in light of the triune creator can we make sense of the organic unity and diversity of this universe clearly manifested to us. Bafink interprets the living subject-object relations within creation in light of the Chalcedonian pattern of inseparable unity and abiding distinction. Unquote. Heaven and earth, man and animal, soul and body, truth and life, art and science, religion and morality, state and church, family and society, and so on, though they are all distinct, are not separated. Now we move on to uh, apply these to an Asian context. Bafink's treatment of the subject-object problem and the related unity and diversity problem, or one and many problem, has proved invaluable to my work as a theologian working in an East Asian context. One grave challenge in this context is that the very structure of East Asian languages historically informed by Chinese often carry the effect of conditioning their native speakers to think in deeply monistic relational terms akin to the relationalistic pantheism espoused by German idealism. They erase boundaries. They deny differentiation. Reformed theologians in the American context tend to be more wary of how the Enlightenment self predicated upon overemphasized objectivity or subject-object differentiations has led to extreme views of individual liberty. Under the pretext of the pursuit of happiness as an unalienable right, which our friend Richard Pratt likes to call the great American heresy, crimes like abortion have been transformed into individual rights. But if in the American context, abortion is a sign of individualism gone wild, then in communist China, it is the diametric opposite. For a long time, under the one-child policy, abortion was considered a duty of lawful citizens to the state. Women were dragged, forced into abortion stations, not even clinics, but just abortion stations against their own will by local authorities just because there was not enough food for everybody to eat. So it's, it's a sign of collectivism, erasing individuality and, and freedom. Now, despite such painful memories, however, the vast majority of the people in China today, from my own experience, still love the communist state passionately. From my country, right or wrong, whatever the state may have done to me as an individual, so the average Chinese person would think, 
I am still a member integral to the state as an organic unity. If the state thrives, I thrive with the state, even though harm has been done to me as an individual. For the average Chinese person, the core of human dignity does not lie with the individual, but rather the collective community to which the person belongs. And ultimately, that is the state. An individual thrives or perishes with the community. And let me just say, by way of clarification, that this relational view of dignity is characteristic not of East Asian culture, but rather of pre-modern culture. Before the Enlightenment, Western society functioned on this relationalist paradigm as well. And I'm not saying that this relational view of dignity is all bad. I think it can offer helpful insights to, cor to correct the extreme individualism characteristic of the modern West. And I think one powerful way of doing this is through theological ref reflections on Chinese and Eastern or, or East Asian languages. One reason why East Asian culture at large, despite processes of modernization and secularization, still tends to imagine human dignity in relationalist and collectivist terms has to do with how the culture is shaped by the language. Modern Western ideologies like communism and mystical nationalism cater to this Asian way of speaking and thinking. Consider, for example, the various plural first pronouns in Chinese language variants. In many Southern dialects, plural first person pronouns serve to convey a sense of undifferentiated unity that tends to defy subject-object differentiations. In Hokkien, which is the major dialect spoken in my native Taiwan, for example, there are basically two plural first person pronouns, namely, Dan and one. Both treat the collection of individuals as undifferentiated, but Dan is inclusive of the party being addressed, while Guan is not. So, so for example, uh, if I say Dankian, uh, that means let's go. Um, but if I say Guan uh, Naikia, that means we are going and you're not. Yeah. But both uh, treat this uh, fir plural first person pronoun not as plural, but as a unity, undifferentiated unity. As a Christian, I can appreciate this feature of the, uh, the, the, the Chinese language. In this linguistic context, we do not need slogans like, from me to we. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard this song and this movement, uh, this cultural movement, um, From Me to We. Uh, it's often sung at weddings, right? Um, we are linguistically, in, in Asia, we are linguistically trained to think in terms of we and not me. I can appreciate the deeply relational nature of subject-object relations in the Chinese language because as a Christian, I believe that human beings, by virtue of having been created in the image of the Trinity, are truly free and autonomous only as personal or hypostatic subjects or agents determined in and by relationships of love. The human being, qua 
being cannot be or exist as an objectless subject for the simple reason that objectless subjects do not qualify as beings. Even God, as being itself, has his being as the lover, the beloved, and the eternal act of love. Without an object, without others, we are nothing. And this brings us to the topic that we uh, briefly mentioned earlier, namely human dignity. Experts in jurisprudence who buy into the narrative handed down from Henry J. S. Maine will think that the relationalist paradigm of dignity as status is a pre-modern one fundamentally opposed to the modern essentialist paradigm of dignity as autonomy. From a Trinitarian perspective and a neo-Calvinist perspective, this understanding of dignity as no more and no less than laissez-faire autonomy can only be a lie. It is a worldview consisting of objectless subjects, a worldview to which major Enlightenment thinkers like Descartes gave rise. Descartes' cogito ergo sum, or I think, therefore I am, in the incisive words of Michael Hamby, led to a, quote, Deus without Trinitas, that is God without Trinity, and arbitrio without delectio and delectatio, that is will, a free will without love, holy love, and delight. Now, uh, by delight, he means that the Father delights in the Son. It's relational. What remains of human love after this perversion is no longer an image of the divine delectio, the divine love, Trinitarian love, in which the Father finds delectatio or delight in the Son, but rather a purely subjective self-love without the love of others. Bavinck's Trinitarian application of the historic archetype-ectype distinction to the doctrine of creation reminds us powerfully that within the Trinity are archetypal statuses of which our creaturely social statuses are ectypes. The fundamental relationality in the human essence created in the image of the, the Trinity ascribes to each human person a social status. Husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, so on and so forth. Contra the ideals of the French Revolution, Bavinck and Kuiper as well, reminds us that social statuses in God's good creation mirror the interpersonal relations of love within the essence of God as unbegotten Father, uncreated Son begotten of the Father, and the uncreated Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. While it is true that the notion of social status was de facto bound up with hierarchical inequality in pre-modern societies, the ecumenically defined doctrine of the Trinity demonstrates that status and inequality are conceptually distinct and separate. The status of the Son in relation to the Father does not make the Son subordinate to the Father. Rather, the persons of the Trinity are co-eternally co-equal in their respective statuses as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To recognize relational status as intrinsic to human dignity, then, does not amount to any approval of inequality or denial of the dignity of the individual. And on to our conclusion. The certainty of faith in the triune God is given to the sphere of the church alone. 
This biblical doctrine is defined by the rule of faith of the church as the norming norm or, or normed norm, norma normata, dogmatics or theology. Baffing insists is the science of the church. It's bound to the church. It's defined by the church. But in the meantime, Baffing believes that theology has to speak into the unbelieving world. And that is the reason why he, or one reason why he uses the language of modern philosophy so overwhelmingly. Theology as such carries the effect or perhaps side effect of transforming language and cultures. That's probably not the purpose of theology. At least I don't think so, but I like to think of such transformations as an overflow of special grace into the realm of common grace. And one example of such a transformation in the, uh, in the East Asian context is the influence of Presbyterian faith and life on the language and culture of my native Taiwan. Those familiar with politics in Asia will know that Taiwan's democracy and rule of law have been significantly informed by Reformed Presbyterianism um, through social and political theories and movements. But few have noted, however, that at a more rudimentary level, Presbyterian life and faith have transformed Taiwanese culture at a linguistic level as well. So for a close, I will share with you the unusual case of Trinitarian transformation of the plural first-person per, first pronouns in the Hokkien dialect. This transformation was, was accomplished through innumerable repetitions of one of the most recited phrases in the history of human civilization, a phrase that begins with a plural first-person pronoun. Our Father in heaven. The 1916 translation of the New Testament by the Scottish missionary Thomas Barclay renders Dan, but most Christians today use Guan. As explained earlier, Nan is used when the party being addressed is included in the first plural first person pronoun, whereas Guan excludes the party being addressed. Traditionally, both convey a strong sense of undifferentiated unity. Taiwanese Presbyterians struggled between the uses of nan and guan in the Lord's Prayer. New Testament scholars provided evidence and arguments for both translations, but what eventually led to a pervasive accept, uh, acceptance of guan were the liturgical practices and religious life of the churches. The choice for guan is reflective of an originally Augustinian theology and anthropology inherited by Formosan churches primarily through Scottish and Canadian Presbyterianism. Whereas Lan only carries the connotation of unity, Guan conveys both unity and solidarity. That this Christian prayer is believed to be originally the Lord's own means that for the believer, this prayer is prayed in and with the Lord, the man Jesus. In Jesus, this refers to the uh, believer's union with Christ, in which the believer becomes one with Christ. Yet the unity of believers in Christ is not an undifferentiated one. 
For to pray with Christ presupposes being differentiated from Christ as an individual person. The problem is that in the Hokkien dialect, and the Chinese language in general for that matter, verbs are not conjugated according to numbers, and so the plurality of subjects in the pronoun dan is not immediately obvious from the act of praying as an act performed with other distinct persons and with Christ. That is to say, whereas the Hellenistic mind might more easily have understood the prayer with Christ uh, entails being differentiated from him, the Taiwanese or Formosan mind would tend to understand the solidarity as an undifferentiated one. So the truly transforming part of the Lord's Prayer lies in Trinitarian differentiation between the Father, the Son, and Jesus, uh, when Jesus, with us and not with the Father, prays to the Father. What is truly remarkable in the address of the Father as our Father? No native speaker of the Hokkien dialect would ever address his or her father with the possessive pronoun. Expressions like, my father, my father, in Goethe's Erkönig are entirely foreign to Chinese patterns of speaking. You don't say, my father, my father, you don't say that in Chinese, because possessive pronouns convey differentiation, and filial piety in Confucian cultures strongly discouraged children from dis differentiating themselves from their parents. Now, if none were used in the Lord's Prayer, then the prayer is either addressed to believers who pray with Jesus and not to the Father, in which case Jesus would have been taken as standing in an undifferentiated unity with believers, or addressed in a linguistically awkward manner to the Father, in which case the Father and we, with Jesus, would form an undifferentiated unity. Eventually, therefore, none grew out of favor among Formosan Christians. That Jesus differentiates himself from the Father who is being prayed to is highlighted in the use of one. As the Son, he is one with the Father, but as a man, he is one with his believers who come with him before the Father. The use of one in the Lord's Prayer highlights Christ's unity with believers as a unity distinct from his oneness with the Father in accordance with his divine nature, and hence his solidarity with believers before the Father. The highly unusual and basically unprecedented use of the Hokkien word one as an address from a group of children to a parent in the Lord's Prayer has significantly transformed the meaning of the word as it is used in the churches. For the first time in the history of the Hokkien dialect, a plural first-person pronoun is used without obl obliterating individuality. With this unusual use of one, the believer's unity in and with the Lord Jesus in light of the inner differentiations between the persons of the Trinity as reflected in the hypostatic differentiation between Christ and the Father in the Lord's Prayer would no, no longer be misunderstood as what Bavink would call a deadly bath of uniformity in which diversity is dissolved. Rather, the unity is a calm union in which diversity flourished 
or flourishes in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God to whom the believer prays in and with Christ, our Father. It serves well to recall that a distinctively Western doctrine of the Trinity was initially developed against a Platonist background in a fundamentally unplatonic manner. The Platonist deity is characterized by an absolute simplicity that defies any sort of inner differentiation. This deity cannot even be itself or know itself because self-being and self-knowledge presupposes self-differentiation. This deity is apathetic because it cannot even love itself. The God of Scripture, by contrast, is an essence simple and manifold, says Augustine. The inner self-differentiation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit allows the apostle to proclaim God is love. The impassable God of Scripture is not an apathetic deity, but rather an affectionate ipsum esse. The differentiated unity of God's triune essence allows the Son to speak to the Father, either as God himself or as a man praying in solidarity and on behalf of his followers. But again, Christ himself is one with the Father. The Western theological tradition that Bavink follows consistently insists that the Son has no aseity in and of himself. The aseity of the Son is not a detached aseity, but rather the, the aseity of God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as one essence. That is to say, the hypostatic or personal agency of the Son is not that of an essence, but that of a relational status. The Son cannot be the Son in and of Himself. He is the Son only in relation and relatedness to His Father. He subsists ex essentia patri, out of the essence of the Father, Athanasian Creed. It is of utmost importance to note again that in the archetypal communion of the Holy Trinity, the archetypal diversity in unity and unity in diversity, the relational status of the Son does not make him subordinate to the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal in their respective statuses in the communion of the one immutable essence. Our Father in heaven, believers of the triune I am, if they are willing to understand by faith the meaning of these words, would in principle follow a path very different from that traversed by believers of the Cartesian I am, the path that has in our own day led to seemingly irreconcilable oppositions between subjectivity and objectivity, autonomous or autonomy and status. Guan di Tiniebe, our Father in heaven, in Taiwanese. In the Taiwanese context, this subjective address to the heavenly object with our Lord has spoken powerfully into a society where both the deadly bath of relational, uh, relational unity and individualistic diversity gone wild from the uh, modern West continually impose themselves upon the ordinary folk who does not cease to long for dignity, dignity in both individual autonomy and relational status. Thank you.